Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Yeah, here we go, here we go. First series of the new year, a new four-week series called All Access. Uh, we are very excited about it. I'm excited to tell you about it today. And then today is also day one of 21 days of prayer and fasting, this 21-day season in our church where we really lean in to praying to God, fasting from food or different elements in our life and uh, focusing on Him. Uh, if you missed last week's message, we really kind of set up that season and what that is, but I hope uh, tonight you could join us for our first uh, night of worship. We're going to have three nights of worship on the Sunday nights of these things, and tonight at 7 o'clock we're going to do a collaboration with our student service, so everyone is invited uh, for a fun, dynamic service, service of prayer. Uh, I've got a short teaching I want to give you that I'm really excited to give you out of the book of Acts on prayer, and uh, everyone's invited to that. Uh, again, we're collabing with our student service, so, so we'll have some fun things in there with that. So students come on, uh, adults come on, and we'll have a dynamic time tonight. Just also want you to know you don't have to be nervous about that service. You won't be put on the spot in any way. There will be a time of prayer and, again, a dynamic service, but you won't be put on the spot in any way at that time as well. We've released our resources for the uh, 21 days, so on the back of the room, on, on your way out, we also have digital versions of all this. We've got our Pray First book, and if you've gotten one of these before, this is the same edition, but this is my favorite resource that we have at Rockbrook, life-changing, these uh, prayer outlines in here and prayer directions that you can follow, and then we also have uh, things that are specific to this year, so there's a 21-day prayer emphasis that you can follow along with. So our church is going to be united in prayer. Uh, everybody praying over a specific thing each day. And then we've got uh, some information on fasting. We just wanted to give a write-up on all the questions and answers we could think of about fasting. And I think you'll appreciate this. There's some sample menus, some sample ideas. And what's the purpose of fasting and how to get the most out of it and then also a Bible reading plan. We're going to take 21 days, and if you follow this plan, you'll read through the New Testament book of Hebrews, which will go great with this series uh, that I'm uh, about to unleash here today, uh, but it sets up kind of what the book of Hebrews is about, then you could fold it in half and just throw it in your Bible, and it will uh, complement this well as we're in the Old Testament, studying the tabernacle, looking through the New Testament book of Hebrews, and Hebrews ends with these great faith chapters and these chapters of some of the greatest chapters of faith in the Bible, which sets up our next season of daring faith. And we're going to launch in February our next spiritual growth campaign, where we are going to take two months and do an all-out intensive on what the Bible has to say about faith, because everything God wants to do in your life comes through faith. And so we're going to align our church uh, from adults, teens, kids, weekend services, daily times with God, all around this topic. But really where the engine of that is going to be and where you're going to get the most out of it is in our small groups. If you're not plugged into a small group for 
uh, that season, uh, you're really going to be missing a major component uh, that's going to grow your faith and help you get a lot out of it. We've already filmed the small group content for it. We're just now getting ready, getting ready to go. Again, you've heard me a couple weekends kind of set up this daring faith thing, but now I would love to start hearing from some of you uh, who are, you say, my small group's in, I would love to be in a small group, and over this next month, we can start putting that together. So there is a card in your worship guide. There's also, if you're following along on the Rockbrook app, it's on the homepage of the app. If you'll pull out that card and look at it with me, there's a couple of things that if you could say, man, I'd love to help our church grow in faith, and I'd love to help in this season. One of the things that you could commit to is leading your current, if you're a current small group, you could say, hey, we're in, we're doing the Daring Faith campaign, we're looking forward to it. Another thing you could commit to is you could say, I could lead someone I know or a couple of people I know through the Bible study, through the curriculum. Again, it can be a small group. If you've got one or two people, you say, I'd love to go. Would you go through this Bible study with me? And we'll get you the content and make a pathway for you to do that. Then the third thing, option you could commit to is I could lead some people I know, like take somebody else through it with me. And then you say, if other people are looking for a small group, uh, they can join mine. And what I've found is a lot of people are they want to be in a small group. They want to be connected to others in their church. They just don't know where or how or who or when, those different things. And so if you'd say, well, I could lead some new people or I want to join a small group during this campaign, we could get that from you and help connect you uh, with some different groups that are open and different times and different availabilities. Again, this just, you'll hear us talk more about this, but this just helps us over the coming month uh, to set up so we can launch strong and start strong with Daring Faith in February. Game on, everybody. Say yes. Thank you. All right. Years ago, I went with a friend to see one of my favorite, favorite bands. And my friend knew the band very well. He had toured with them for a time. <clears throat> and so we got there very early in the morning, and they were so surprised to see him and grateful to see him and we helped them load in with all their gear and set up and and do all these different things that day and everywhere he went he could go in but I kept getting stopped by security because I'm just this I'm just this guy with my friend and they would keep stopping me so finally somebody got me a badge that said all access and with that badge I never got stopped again I could go anywhere on the tour bus watched sound check, looked at all their technical gear and all the different things. We had lunch with the band, dinner with the band. They say never meet your heroes, but it was really a fun day and, and a great time with them. And it was fun to have all access to this event. And I wonder, where would you like to have all access to? What would be something really cool that you would love to have an all access pass to? Uh, the Super Bowl, anybody? The World Series? Uh, maybe uh, a master's tournament. I didn't have that one written down, but I just saw Al. I thought maybe that would be one for him, you know. And uh, A museum, maybe an archaeological warehouse. Uh, Area 51, anybody all access to Area 51? An amusement park. Uh, I asked a lady last night, I said, where would you like all access to? And she said, a spa. Give me all access to a spa right now. Asked another person, Big Daddy's Donuts, I'll take all access to there. 
But the greatest honor of all is that we could have all access to all the privileges, all the things of who God is and what he wants to do. And I want to tell you the bottom line of this whole series as we begin today is that God wants you to be with him and that God wants to be with you. And he wants to be with you in the low points and the high points and the things that you're ashamed of and the things that you struggle with. And he wants to get down in the middle of the complicated situations in your life. And he wants to be there with you during the successes, during the births, during the deaths. He wants to be with you in good times and in bad times. And he also wants you to be with him. Uh, he wants you to be with him in heaven. He wants to be with you, or he wants you to be with him in the story he's creating right now. He wants you to have a great inheritance from him. He wants you, he says, to reign over the earth and sky with him. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing. Can you believe that? He wants to be at the center of the story of you. And I'm going to tell you a story over the next four weeks. It's not a fantasy story. It's a real story. And today we're going to look at three chapters in the story. But I want to pause up front and tell you um, whether or not you're new and we welcome you, you're wanted in this place, or whether or not you've been having a lot of Rockbrook teaching under your belt at this point, that today's message is going to be different than our usual. And today, in fact, today's message may end and you might say, I don't really know what to do with that yet. I don't really know how to think about that, or I don't even know if that was a good message or not. Because you don't show up in this story for quite a while. It's your story. It's about God, in, or it's a story of God in you, but it's not about you. And so there's a while before we show up in it. But I really believe you're going to appreciate this content and grow because of it, and maybe connect some dots because of it. Chapter one in your story, the story of you and God, is that God had a plan. And we're going to move rather quickly during some parts of this, so keep your head up for notes. But this story actually begins with God. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the plants, the animals, the trees, and he made people. The Bible says in Genesis 3 that God was in the habit of walking with the people that he created with Adam and Eve and communicating with them and talking with them. And we don't know how long this went on before Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent who suggested that God was holding out on them. And that God really had some information that he was sharing that, hey, all this time God's walking and talking with you, he's really holding out on you. And he's not being nice to you, he's being mean to you. And he's withholding stuff from you. And so Adam and Eve decided that they were going to listen to what the serpent said and not to what God was sharing with them and showing them in his kindness. And Adam and Eve unleashed on the world sin and death and separation from God, and everything changed in that moment. But even there, God was patient with his people, and he told them in the middle of the brokenness and sin, he told Eve, Eve, I know you failed, you sinned, but someday I'm going to send through your descendants, through your seed, someone who is going to crush the head of the serpent and make it right. And from there, God continued to seek relationship with his creation to walk and communicate with them again. And he talked to a childless man named Abraham and told Abraham uh, that you're going to have a son. 
and it's going to be miraculous, and you're going to be the father of a great nation. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant was that if you'll follow me, if you'll follow God, he said, I'll bless you. And the story continues where Abraham does become a father, and he becomes the father of a great nation, starts a new people through him. And one of his great grandsons is a guy named Joseph. And Joseph's brothers, the other great-grandsons, don't like Joseph. And there's a group of slave traders coming through their area one day. And the brothers decide to sell Joseph to the slave traders. And Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, ends up in Egypt as a slave. But while he was there, he rose up in power and becomes a second command in Egypt only next to Pharaoh, and it's one of the most amazing accounts in history of this man who comes in as a slave and rises up as the most powerful man in the area where he was a slave. Now, because of a famine, his family that sold him into slavery actually migrates to Egypt, and over a a period of time, that family of 70 people, so they've got to face Joseph again, and Joseph faces them again, and it's very dramatic. And then over a period of time, those, those people become dozens, become hundreds, become thousands, become hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of people. And over those years, obviously, the, that Pharaoh dies, and Joseph dies, and it's generations later, And this Pharaoh now doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't care about the past. All he knows is that there are millions of people in his country that he says they don't belong here. And they might rise up and cause an insurrection. They might depose of him. So he enslaves them and suppresses them. And so this group of people who had been Joseph's family, who had grown to millions, become enslaved by the Egyptians for over 400 years. And uh, they end up building some of the great cities and great monuments that we've uncovered in archaeological digs. And the people who have been enslaved are working in these terrible conditions. And they're crying out for a deliverer. They want to be saved. And God hears their cries. And the Bible says that he uses a man named Moses, who was also an Israelite, also from this people group. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So even though life is going great for him, he's living in the palace, things are okay, he feels for his people, and God calls Moses to be the deliverer for Israel, and God delivered Israel through Moses. You might write his name down. And it, but as you can imagine, Mo, or Pharaoh needs the slaves. And when Moses shows up and says, uh, these people are going to be delivered, and you need to let them go, Pharaoh refuses and curses God. So God has to break Pharaoh and break Egypt to get them to let the people go. And he does this by sending plagues. He ends up sending 10 plagues. And it's horrible stuff like blood in the water or an overwhelming amount of locusts or an overwhelming amount of frogs. And it got down to the place. Pharaoh was so hard-hearted. It got to the place where God says, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to kill the firstborn child of every family in Egypt. 
If you put blood over the doorpost, I will spare your family and spare that firstborn son. But other than that, uh, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to kill the firstborn child. The Israelites put blood over the doorposts and uh, they were spared. They were passed, their home was passed over and the firstborn child did not die. But Pharaoh did not believe it. And Pharaoh rebelled against God again. And God allowed the firstborn children of Egypt to be killed. That was the breaking point for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh let the Israelites out of Egypt. In fact, his statement was, go and worship your God. And all the Egyptian neighbors who had lived with the Israelites, God prompted them to give the Israelites as they're leaving, as they're packing up their stuff and moving, to give them precious metals, to say, hey, here's a ring with a precious stone in it, or here's silver and here's gold to take into your, the next phase of your life. So the Israelites, Moses is leading the Israelites, loaded down with all this stuff from Egypt, and the only places to go is out in the desert. And they travel, these two million people, travel out into the desert, and very shortly, Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, wait, you're not taking all of our stuff, and I'm not going for this anymore. And he rallies his army to go after the Israelites and bring them back as slaves. But because of the plagues and everything, it's, it's going to be very bad for them. There is no going back. But they traveled enough in their journey that they get to the Red Sea. And there's nowhere to go. Sea in front of them, desert behind them. Sea in front of them, army coming behind them. And God does a miracle. He makes a way where there was no way. And God at that moment allowed the Red Sea to open up a wall of water on one side, a wall of water on the other. And the Israelites begin to cross on dry ground. That had to take a little bit of time for two million people to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. So God keeps them hidden until the moment the last Israelite foot hits ground on the other side. The Egyptians see it. They run in. They go in, chariot in to the dry ground. And when they're all inside, God swallows them up with water and they are drowned. And that amazing moment, as you can imagine, the Red Sea experience was a defining moment for the Israelites. This moment, if you're taking notes, you might write that in. It, it defined everything about who they were. And Exodus 14.31 says this is their response when they witnessed what God did on their behalf. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And after everything that they had just been through, Their response was, God, we trust you, and we trust your servant Moses. But now they're out on the other side of the Red Sea. They're in the desert, and it leads to chapter 2, and I call this chapter Camping with God. And it starts with this ragtag group of Israel people who, they're just a connected group of tribes. So follow me with this. You kind of got to, in this moment with me, Kind of forget everything else you know about the Israelites and everything else that happens after this in the Old Testament. Because right now, in this moment, uh, they, they weren't really connected in any way. They had been slaves. They're just these 12 tribes that had grown to 2 million people. They didn't have common traditions. They didn't have an army. They didn't have a country. They were homeless. 
They didn't even have a nation to call their own. There's not even really shared values. There's no piece of ground that was theirs. There's no common religion. There's no religion yet. All they knew is that their Joseph's great-grandfather had a covenant with God, and then the 400 years that they had been slaves, they'd not even been worshiping God. They've been surrounded by idols in Egypt, and some of them worshiping these idols. They just know that somewhere in the distant past, in some past chapter, that God said, you will be mine, and I will be with you. And then he shows up in this powerful way, but it's all brand new to them. But so typical of human beings, within three days of leaving, within three days of being delivered in this miraculous way, three days later, they're in the desert, they have no food, they have no water, and they decide, we don't trust God or Moses anymore, and this is horrible, and we would just as soon go back to Egypt. And I'm not proud to tell you I've been there before where God has showed up miraculously in my life and done something amazing. And I say, God, I trust you. And three days later, I'm, what in the world is going on? And they start romanticizing what it was like to be slaves in the past. And in Exodus 16.3, they said, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But you have brought us into the wilderness to starve to death. And in chapter 17, verse 3, he said, Why did you, God, Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And so many times in Israel's history, they complained, but then God provided. And God is patient with them. And God provides manna from them. Uh, maybe you've heard of, of manna. He, he provides quail for them. So there would be manna in the morning that they would harvest. And then quail at night that they would catch so that they would have protein. And they live like that for three months. And their whole encampment ends up traveling to the bottom of the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And there God says to Moses, come up on the mountain I want to talk to you. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, and yes, God provided for them in this season, but God begins revealing his heart on Mount Sinai and his heart for the people. Because keep in mind, they don't know who he is. And he says, and he says these very tender words in Exodus 19, verse 4. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. And brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God says, out of everybody on the face of the earth, I choose you. I choose you to be my nation, my treasured possession. And the people responded to that because Moses came down from the mountain and told them this very tender offer that God had made here. And this was their response. The people all responded together. We'll do, it. We'll do everything the Lord has said. They said, we're in. 
So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then he goes back down the mountain and talks to the people and goes back up and talks to God again. And I mean, Moses must have just been like this rip mountain climber. I don't know. He's up and down and up and down through this whole thing. And keep in mind, they don't know. They don't know God at this point. They know they've been rescued. They know they've been sa- saved. Uh, but they don't know. At one point, they say, God, we want to see your glory. We want to see who you are. And God actually lowered his presence on the mountain, and the earth began to quake, and there's thunder and lightning, and the people go, no, 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 never mind, never mind. We don't want to know. Just talk to Moses. And so Moses becomes this intermediary between uh, God and the people, and he makes these trips back and forth. One of these times, God asks Moses, to be on the mountain with him for an extended period of time for 40 days. And in that 40 days, God starts the next chapter of our story here. And I'm calling this one the twos because everything that happens in this chapter happens in pairs, happens in twos. But in this 40-day period, now that Moses is back up on the mountain with God, God gives him two systems. He gives a system of law because not only did the Israelites have a nation, they didn't have traditions, they didn't have customs, they didn't have any written down law, they had no shared law. And they didn't really know what God was expecting of them. And God says, if you're going to be my people, here's what I'm expecting. And he gives them the law. And God laid out for them very clearly in specific detail, the ceremonial, the moral, the spiritual laws that they were supposed to observe and what he expected from them. But he also gave Moses another system, and it was a system of sacrifice. Because he knew that the people he had just given all this law to, there is no way on earth they could ever keep it. They could ever do it. It was, it's too specific, it was too hard to be God's people. It's too hard to be that close to God. So he made a way for them to have restitution and find forgiveness and find grace and continue this relationship with him even though they could not measure up. And so God had provided a system of sacrifice to be restored to him. And God said, Moses, I want you to house these two systems that are going to be so intrinsic to who you are and to to your culture and who you become and what I'm going to do, house these two systems in what's called a tabernacle. And he says to Moses in 25 verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, there's the fill-in if you missed it, and all its furnishings exactly to the pattern I will show you. So he says, you're going to build a a sanctuary. A sanctuary was a set-apart place. And he says, you're going to dwell among you. Tabernacle and dwell are are, uh, very, very similar. They're practically the same word. So God says, I want a separate, sacred, set-apart place as you're out moving around and camping in your encampment that is set apart uh, for God so I can dwell with you, so I can tabernacle with you. And for many years, the Israelites used this portable sanctuary, this portable tabernacle, 
uh, and moved it around in the desert as they moved around and wandered and even set it up in the promised land when they get to the promised land. And this portable place of sacrifice and forgiveness had two purposes. The two purposes of the tabernacle was one, to establish God as the one true God. Because remember, they've been surrounded by idols in Egypt. And they didn't know who the true God was. And so God needs to wean them away from idol worship and establish himself as the one true God. The two ways that he does that is by creating a a place of worship, the tabernacle, that could also show the other nations and the other people around them that, wow, look at the Israelites. They don't have idols. They don't have this vague relationship with a God. Uh, They're living in a covenant and God's doing powerful things. And it became this place of witness in Exodus 34.10. This one's just on the screen here. The Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. Watch this now. I will do wonders never before seen in any nation in all the world. And the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. So the surrounding pagan nations that had wood and bronze and and, and clay idols, gods that didn't move, couldn't see, couldn't touch, couldn't do anything, They're looking and saying, Israel has a God who delivered them, has a God who parts seas, has a God who thunders from a mountain, has a God who scares everybody to death, has a God who becomes approachable and gives grace and forgiveness. They have a God who's real. And the fact that there was this tabernacle in the middle of this huge encampment was a witness to the world that there's something different about Israel's God and there's something so different that he might even be like the creator of the whole world that we're experiencing and it became a place of witness okay so this is what the tabernacle looked like it's very simple it's very it's not very large it's just a very simple compound and this is just one that like someone recreated in the desert to the specifications that I mean, it's easy to know what it looked like and how to recreate it because it's listed out in detail uh, of, of what it looks like in the Bible. And so you had this outer court uh, that was made of white linen, and it created this place. And the white linen represented the holiness of God. And then there was a place uh, right here. This is an altar where sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were made. And there's this big... Uh, a bronze laver here where uh, you would have water in there and that's where you would wash. But then there was this other, so this is like a tent without a top, but then there's this other place in here that was a tent with a top. And we'll talk about what was in there, but uh, there are a couple different components of what's inside. In fact, let me show you another thing. This is the diagram that Rockbrook for Kids is uh, using as they go through a kid's version of this called the Secrets of the Tabernacle. And here you can see uh, like the animals in there and the tables or the priests could prepare them. Then where they would wash in the water and then this tabernacle back here, this building that had, you'd walk in and there's some components we'll talk about in the series, but then there was this huge veil. And behind the veil, behind the thick veil was the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments, where the law that God gave them was stored. And they put that in there. And the only time you could go in there was 
once a year. The high priest only could go in there. And we're going to cover all of this in more detail. But I want to show you what it looks like so as we begin walking through it next week, you'll see the power of it. But the first purpose of the tabernacle, this place in the middle of their encampment, was to establish God as the one true God. The second purpose, though, was to point to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. Not just for this nation, but for everybody. And God's eternal plan has never changed. It's always been to rescue men and women from the power of sin in their life. And they begin, God begins slowly, methodically explaining this to his people. But he didn't start with that. He started with an object lesson. In fact, all of the tabernacle was just an object lesson. And that's why it's going to be so fun to teach and so fun to learn because that was the point of all the things in it. It was something familiar that they could touch and taste and see and smell, something that they could get their hands on. But it, it had a deeper meaning behind all of it. And the deeper meaning behind everything in the tabernacle was to point the way to the fulfillment of God's plan for salvation. And so God says, I want you to follow this in specific detail because every piece of wood, every color, every instrument, every metal, everything about it, even the sacrificial system, everything points to Jesus Christ. Now, there were two lead characters in this chapter of the story. There are the Levites and the priests. And these are the two groups who ministered uh, in the tabernacle. So the Levites, this is one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And God said, you're in charge of packing this thing up and taking it to its new place. And uh, you're in charge of cleaning up the animals, and you're the janitors and the singers, and you're the ones who are going to pull off portable church here, okay? And then there's the priests who are also from the same tribe, but God narrows it down. And they're the ones uh, that, um, that are actually doing the, sacrif the sacrificial system. Their role, the role of the priests, was to be, if you're taking notes, representatives of the people, so there's no way that two million people could bring an offering or a sacrifice into that tiny space. So God said the priests will be the representatives. So all you Israelites, when you see the priests at work, you can know that he's working on your behalf. And it's actually like they're doing your work. The second uh, key role were the animals who were the substitute for sin. The priests were the representative of the people, and the animals were the substitute for people's sin. This is really key. The key thought to understand here and to know is that God is holy and righteous, and they were not holy and righteous, and we're not holy and righteous. And God said, if you, want, if, if you sin, if you break the law, the penalty is death. If you don't measure up to my holiness and righteousness, uh, it's all or nothing with God. You can either stand in his presence or you can't. You can either be in the presence of holiness and righteousness or you can't. And they said, so the penalty is something has to bleed, something has to die. Nothing imperfect can be in my sight. So same is true for us. Like, sin does not make you 
a bad person. Yes, there are bad elements of sin. The real problem, though, is that sin makes you dead. And it makes you unable to stand in the holiness and righteousness of God. But God in his grace said there can be a substitute in your place. And so every time you sin, an animal can pay the penalty for what you've done. Something has to bleed. Something has to, die. Some, something has to pay the price. When the price is paid, it's okay. So what are the responses that we can have as we finish this chapter? Again, today's just going to kind of end, and we'll pick up again next week. But I think there's two responses that we see that the Israelites set as a model for us that we can have. And one is to accept his invitation into a relationship. That fence that I showed you, that white linen fence, uh, it said stay away. What, what I didn't tell you is if you tried to jump over that fence or ladder over that fence into the courtyard, you died. If you tried to cut your way through the linen and go in that way, you died. Uh, if you thought you'd get really creative and tunnel underneath and come up into the courtyard, you died. There was no way to get to God. There was no way to get to his righteousness and holiness. And every Israelite knew not to get near the fence because it was too holy. Stay away. But the gate, there was a gate there that said, come in. And the gate was an invitation to come in, to be in relationship with him, to come in his way. Don't jump over, don't climb under, don't tunnel under, don't figure out your own system, your own way. Come in through the gate that I have put in the fence. And it's the same for you and I today. There's a gate for us. As the creator of the world, God gets to set up how we access him and how we find him. And Jesus is our doorway. There's only one way to get to God, it is through Jesus, the gateway, the doorway. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't tunnel in, you can't jump over, you can't ladder in, you can't come up with your own system, you can't come up with your own logic and reasoning, you come in through me. In John 10, 9, he says explicitly, I am the gate. No one comes to the Father through, except through me. Those who come in through me, though, through this gate, will be saved. And so many people stumble right here. How can Jesus be the only way? Well, imagine with me, uh, imagine with me that you're getting married. And you're getting married on Saturday, March 11th. Is that true for anyone? Anyone in here just before we move on? Okay. Saturday, March 11th. And you uh, send out invitations and you invite me to your wedding. And it says, would you come? The pleasure of inviting you to our wedding Saturday, March 11th. And there's an RSVP card in there. And I fill out the RSVP card and I send it back and I say, Saturday, March 11th doesn't work for me, but I can make it Saturday, March 18th. Does that work for you? And I send it back. If you got that, what would you think? You go, this is ridiculous. I'm getting married on the 11th. We've planned it. We've done the invitations. We've got the whole thing going. You can't come. We'll already be married. I can't move the whole wedding because that's the time that you can make it.
But we try to do that with God. God says, here's the way. Clearly maps it out. But we say, ah, it doesn't work for me. Could you do it this way? Can, can you get to me this way? And God has told us there's one way to approach him. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, the gate, the doorway. And you can try your own way and try your own logic. And you can go and do that, but you will not find me, God says. And so God is asking us to accept his invitation to a relationship, to RSVP, to his invitation, his date, his time, his place, his way. And the other response that the Israelites got right was to do what he says. It was because of everything he had done for them that they responded in this heart response that God, whatever you say, will do. As we close, and before you get to it, Jamie, I want to give you two responses. Two, resp- or two things to think about. And we're going to end each of these messages with two truths to ponder or a truth to ponder. And the truth to ponder this, this week is that God is huge and that God is small. And you might say, that's the best you came up with. God is huge and God is small. Uh, But let me give you the big words here if you want a theological word in here. And that is that God is transcendent. Meaning God is huge. He's outside of the human experience. He's so far beyond our human understanding and ability to comprehend. He's transcendent. He's huge. But he's also imminent. Meaning he's near, he's close, he's small, he permeates everything, he's in everything. Uh, He's in all the parts of your life, he's Emmanuel, he is God with you. God wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him. God is transcendent, he is imminent. God is huge and God is small and he's the God who longs to live with you and he wants to tabernacle, he wants to dwell with you today. Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24. Would you read this one out loud with me? I am a God who is near, says the Lord. I am also a God who is far away. No one can hide where I cannot see him, says the Lord. I fill all of heaven and earth, says the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we confess to you today, we align with you today that you are the God who is big enough to handle all of the messes in our lives. Uh, You're the God who's big enough to take what's broken in a million pieces and begin putting it back together. And you're the God who uh, does miraculous things. And God, you have provided for us. And God, I pray that our heart response uh, would be and begin to be, whether or not we have begun believing you in the last week or last month or uh, many, many years ago. I pray that our heart response would be, God, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. I I accept your invitation. I want you. I don't want some God that I've made up. I don't want some system that I've created. That God, I want you. God, thank you for making our hearts your home. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. 
visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.